history happened everywhere. The verdict. This is our after show podcast where we look back at the most recent episode, number 76, between a rock and a hard place in the Tropic of Cancer during 800 to 900 CE. So if you haven't listened to that, go back and check it out or else there will be spoilers ahead. Sorry, I, w- I was fiddling with my stool. I'll push it back in. My name is Ryan Weir, and I'm here in the HHE studio with the marshmallow to my simple solution. It's Mr. Peter Goddard. I'm feeling squishy and tasty today, Ryan. I think you've identified exactly my current state of mind. Well, that's good because we are going to roast you over an open fire. Yeah, it does feel that that is coming. So I'm ready. I'm steeled and braced. And we are joined as ever by the diverse druid of daunting deserts. It's the judge himself. It's Mr. Paul Dursley. Hello. Good evening. Now, Peter, I have spent the past week drinking salt water and the resultant madness has resulted in my forgetting absolutely everything that you said during the last episode. So would you mind reminding me what happened in, let's say, 60 seconds? Not a problem. When would you like me to start? Do it. Now! You and I encircled the globe, following the northernmost point on Earth where you can see the sun directly overhead. We learned how the Earth tilts and the land gets hotter, we discovered the 16 countries that lay along the line, and we took a trip between a rock and a hard place. We discovered the value of humble rock salt mined and sold in the Kingdom of Ghana. We took a trip with Al Masudi and his colleague Al Sarafi, who between them travelled from Africa all the way across to China, writing about the harlots they met along the way. And we heard the tale of Fung Chao's rebellion that caused silk shortages in Arabia, and although it didn't actually succeed in the end, spelled doom for the Tang dynasty in China. Did I manage to navigate between my rock and a hard place? I guess that's for the judge to decide. That was last week's episode done. Summarised nicely, nice one son. Now we're over to a young Dursley who's gonna tell you what he thought of me. He'll take you apart without any care. He's the lovely Paul Dursley. The lovely Paul Dursley. Ah, yes, I remember now, and what an episode it was. You circumnavigated a tricky challenge with a plot, deftly weaving together some fascinating stories with riveting facts. But what does it matter what I think? My opinion is not worth the paper the script is written on. We are, of course, here for the opinion of just one man, Judge Dursley. So, Paul, before we reveal your grade for this episode, let's start with your first impressions of the episode. It was an interesting episode, given that your subject was only a single dimension. Yeah, well, that was my first thought as well. I, I have to admit, I started it thinking this is going to be really easy. There's loads of space that it's covering. And I found myself really struggling to bring it together somehow. Well, you attempted to work out the area of the tropic. I did. Yeah, I thought that was quite clever. Well, the answer is zero because it has no width. Well, I've got two things. I've got a confession and a confirmation on that front. For the for the purposes of maths and to give it an area, I gave it a one second width. But my original script, I had misread the dimensions that the website of the Hawaiian Pacific Studying Organization, whatever it was I got it from, I'd misread it. And I thought it had starting and finishing longitude as exactly the same, which would make it no width at all, which makes your exact point that there is no area because there is no width. But I misread it. There was actually a little bit 
fit of width and I hadn't done the maths. So I had to stick with my original calculation based on one second of latitude or longitude rather to create an area. So uh, I don't understand how a line can have girth. Well, and this is a good point. I was kind of trying to find out how wide is the Tropic of Cancer, but of course, notionally, it has no width at all, does it? It, As a line, it is entirely conceptual, isn't it? And I was surprised by how little area you ended up with with a round the world line even though it was relatively narrow i was i would i was expecting a lot more space uh, as it were e- even with my one second of longitude here's an interesting thing if you put a rope around the equator it would be say 24000 miles long mm-hmm. now if you wanted to hold that rope 6 foot above the equator mm-hmm. all the way around the world how long would it be then how much extra rope would you have to put in just by lifting it up six feet off the ground? Yes. Around the 24,000 miles of the Earth. 26,000 miles. 30,000 miles. A million miles. <laughs> You're not taking this seriously, are you? It's more we, we acknowledge the limits of our knowledge, I think, is the, the thing here. Well, the, but- the odds, the odds uh, is pi d, so it would only be of the order of 10 feet. That can't possibly be right. Is that right? Yes. Ten feet, that's all it would take? Yeah. That's slightly alarming because that's basically what's happening when I let my belt out one notch. <laughs> <laughs> no, if you if you think about it, the circumference goes as the two pi radius. So if the ra- if the radius increases by twelve, okay, sorry, I was wrong. Twelve, so two pi twelve. It would twenty five feet. Sorry. 25 feet. That still isn't very much. Not many feet is what I'm taking away from this, regardless. Yeah. That's astonishing. How about that? In my head, it's much, much longer than that. Yeah, exactly. That's the whole point. Everybody everybody would think, well, not everybody, but you know, that's, that's the initial assumption. You'd think it'd be a large number, but it's not. Wow. You've blown my brain, of which there is not much to be blown. <laughs> I was just going to say that doesn't take much. So, Paul, I had some struggles really understanding this tilt of the earth to the sun mm-hmm. and what, what constituted directly overhead. And I, I don't know if you had a better way of describing it. Oh, Ryan got it right. No shadow. Yeah, no shadow. The sun's directly overhead, right? So it just disappears. I'd be like Peter Pan. That must be freaky to see. Yes, I'm sure. I'm sure it would be. Although saying that you know, the shadow will get shorter and shorter and shorter and then nothing and then it will start growing again in the other direction. It probably looked like a computer game or something where all the lighting is slightly wrong. Slightly wrong. Yes. <laughs> yeah. You sometimes get that weird light at the start or the end of the day if the clouds are in a weird configuration that sort of makes the sky a weird colour or you know, strange layers in the sky. I want to go and visit all of these places. I want to visit the Tropic of Capricorn, all of them. Well, funnily enough, I was reading today that the Tropic of Cancer was named the Tropic of Cancer because the sun was in Cancer at the solstice. <laughs> I know, I've, I've really struggled with all this stuff. No, no, it's called Cancer because if you stay in the sun too long, that's what it gives you. 
<laughs> yeah, it was the Tropic of Sunburn originally. <laughs> so actually, it should be called the Tropic of Taurus. And the reason for that is because when the Tropic of Cancer was first named about 2,000 years ago, the sun was pointing in the direction of the constellation of Cancer. But now the Earth has shifted such that it now resides in the constellation of Taurus. We just haven't taken the name on. This is something that I really struggled with with my research was in your head, the Earth is a relatively stable platform and failing that, the sun is fairly reliable. I, I, it became clear to me that everything is wobbling around like crazy and you can't rely on anything. Absolutely. It's almost impossible, or it is technically impossible to model because there are so many factors that take into account. What you can do is you can sort of expand the series and you only take the... The most, the most important terms, which will give you 99.999 accuracy. But, you know, we still can't say how long a day will be in a thousand years time. This stuff blows my mind. I'm just a, an ant walking through the kitchen, really, not, uh, not aware of all the forces that are going on. Okay, but in terms of the name of the constellation of Cancer anyway, that comes from the Greek stories of Hercules. So in the Twelve Labours of Hercules, Hercules is depicted fighting the Hydra, which is that multi-headed monster. And a goddess called Hera, who doesn't like Hercules, she sends a crab down to distract Hercules, which it does do, but is quickly crushed when Hercules just stamps on it. And now, as a reward for its service, its brave service, <laughs> Hera decides to place the crab in the sky. And uh, that's where it becomes the constellation that we know. And that's kind of where it gets its name from. But the word cancer isn't Greek. The Greek word for crab is karkinos. And it was only later when the Romans used Latin that it became known as cancer then, because that was their word for crab. And this is also where we get the name of the disease too, because the Greek physician, Hippocrates, he observed that tumours often had blood vessels attached to them, which stretched out on all sides. And he thought it resembled a crab buried in the sand with its legs spread out. And so he called these tumours carcinos, after crab. And later, the Roman physician, Celsus, who studied Hippocrates' work, he translated this into the Latin word cancer for crab. Then Galen, another prominent Roman physician, he later used the term onchos, which is Greek for swelling, to describe tumours themselves, which is then the root of the modern word oncology. But here's a fun fact for you. Cancer isn't really a thing in of itself. itself. It's a generic term that's used within oncology to describe over a hundred different types of diseases that produce like this uncontrolled spread of abnormal cells that then grow into malignancies or tumours. Cancer is the, as a word, is kind of the modern day, the ague, right? It's a, uh, oh, they're feverish and unwell. We'll call it the ague, but actually it's a bunch of different diseases that gradually get understood over time. That's right. You've got things like carcinomas, which affects the skin or tissue around internal organs, things like the breasts, lungs and prostate. You've got sarcomas, which develop in the bone, cartilage, fat and muscle, lymphomas, which develop in the immune system, and the neuroendocrine, which uh, develop in nerve cells and the cells which produce hormones themselves. So you can get them pretty much all over your body. Cancer facts for you. Some tumours can create their own blood supply to fuel their own growth, which essentially gives you a second heartbeat. It's called angiogenesis. Oh, Slightly horrifying, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and if that's horrifying, what about then that some tumours called teratomas can contain a mix of tissue types like teeth, hair, bone, and even more complex structures? Oh, yes. These are horrible. I advise you not to look those up because 
the the nastiest thing you could think of, what some of these things look like. As you say, you sort of see teeth and just noses are on this sort of lump of stuff. And then there's a nose and a tooth. I'm prepared to look at my tumour. I'm not prepared for my tumour to look back at me. (laughs) With its own heartbeat. (laughs) (laughs) My God. Yeah. So, okay. Oldest known description of cancer, the disease, was found on a papyrus from ancient Egypt. Dates back to around 1600 BCE. And it describes breast tumours for which, in quotes, there is no treatment. And it describes then how they were removed by quarterization. Basically, they heated like a metal instrument and then just burned the breasts off. If you want an interesting book about the history of cancer, The Emperor of All the Maladies is an excellent, excellent history of the research into cancer and what we know and cancer itself. It's a very readable book. Highly recommended. All right. We'll put a link in the show notes, shall we? Yeah. Um, But ancient Egypt isn't as far back as it goes. We know it goes back way, way further. And that's because of a study that was done on a dinosaur where the leg bone showed that it had a type of bone cancer. So we know it goes all the way back there. I know trees can get canker, the lovely burr walnut and those sort of things. That's effectively a cancer of the tree that causes that. That's exactly it. That was my next note. Yeah, they, they get a form of cancer called a burl. Mm. And yeah, it's a massive tissue that just grows faster than the other surrounding tissue. Yeah, and people steal them because they're worth a lot of money. You know, they send them off to Rolls Royce for their burr walnut interiors. This is not unlike the pearl, I suppose, which is a, an irritant and adjutant for as far as the oyster is concerned, and yet something of great value as far as the human is concerned. Very true. We need to end this section somehow with humour. Cancer! (laughs) (laughs) Well, yes, well, half of us will die of it. (laughs) I said funny. (laughs) The fact. Right. So fix that, Ryan. Make that end. Let's talk movies, shall we? Let's mm-hmm. do it. Okay, so uh, Peter, during the episode, you talked about Tropic of Cancer, the novel by Henry Miller. Oh, I did. <laughs> yes, <laughs> your rather risque novel. Well, in 1970, it was turned into a movie, despite having just been like cancelled several years before during the 60s. I was going to say, it only got released in book form in about 63, wasn't it? Something like that. Yeah. No, they made a movie of it starring actor Rip Torn as Henry Miller, and the film follows his misadventures across Paris over the course of several days as he sleeps on the couches of friends and in the beds with their wives. Yes, it is a risque film. It was given an X rating in both America and the UK, and that may be because it was the first film to contain the word (laughs) which was used in the quote, I am you, Tanya, so that you'll stay and if you're afraid of being publicly, I'll you privately. I'll tear off a few hairs from your and paste them on Boris's chin. I will bite into your and spit out two franc pieces. Now, that is from the first chapter of the book, because that is the bit I read too, where I went, I don't think this book's for me. (laughs) (laughs) Boris likes it. (laughs) The tagline of the film, you know, the thing that they put on posters was, the US Customs Bureau barred it as obscene. Readers found it shocking and scandalous. And now, for anyone over 17... It's a movie. (laughs) (laughs) 
Oh, they know what they were doing. <laughs> so there you go. Uh, yeah, uh, Tropic of Cancer. I didn't give it a watch. It's rated quite highly on IMDb, though, and on Rotten Tomato. So, I mean, I get... But it, from the reviews, because I looked through the reviews to see if anybody had written anything stupid, but all of them are quite highfalutin critical reviews of, this is an interesting pastiche of blah, 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 blah. That's the thing. It's a saucy book that was also similarly defended by the highbrow establishment. So I guess you've just got to be fancy enough and then you throw in your your filth and you can get away with it. (laughs) Highbrow pornography. I mean, it's a category. (laughs) But talking of movies, the 2010 Danny Boyle film, 127 Hours. Have you guys seen that film? I have seen that. No, I haven't. It's not 127 hours later, is it? That's also wonderful. No. <laughs> it is one of his films, yeah, but it's 28 days later, I think. Uh, but no, uh, 127 Hours is based on the autobiography of American mountain climber Aaron Ralston. And uh, that is based on his autobiography called Between a Rock and a Hard Place. I mean, he was literally between a rock and a hard place, wasn't he? Well, quite right, because in 2003, Aaron was canyoneering in Blue John Canyon in the Utah desert on his own with nobody knowing he was there when a boulder fell and trapped his arm up against the wall. He was then unable to move and he had to stay in the canyon for five days until he, in the end, having given up on life, he decided the only way of getting out of this was to amputate his own right arm with just a dull pocket knife. Which he did do, and he escaped, and that's how he wrote the book, because otherwise, how would we know? Uh, In many ways, uh, for all our adventuring listeners out there, let's recap where he may have gone wrong. He went out canyoneering on -hmm. his own with nobody knowing he was there. Yeah. So I think the lesson here is don't do that. But he also had a blunt pen knife. Yeah, that was my lesson. My lesson is take a sharper knife. That's the lesson you (laughs) (laughs) do? I mean, my main lesson was don't go canyoneering at all and stay at the bar, but maybe uh, I understand why people are attracted to these things. He wrote in his book, Between a Rock and a Hard Place, quote, My disbelief paralyzes me temporarily as I stare at the sight of my arm vanishing into an implausibly small gap between the fallen boulder and the canyon wall. Within moments, my nervous system's pain response overcomes the initial shock. Good Christ, my hand. The flaring agony throws me into a panic. I grimace and growl. My mind commands my body, get your hand out of there. I yank my arm three times in a naive attempt to pull it out, but I'm stuck. He was a remarkable person, wasn't he? He chopped his own arm off and and made a clean getaway, as it were. I can only assume his hand is still there, wedged between the the rock and the hard place. That's a really good point, yeah. So what happened after he chopped it off? How How did he stop the bleeding? Well, you have to watch the movie. It's a good movie. In fairness, they do make a good movie out of it. I thought it might be boring, but it was not. Yeah, my favourite bit of the movie is where he uses the dull knife to cut through the nerves and the tendons in his arm. Oh, lovely. It's a nice big close-up of that. There there really is. It's very memorable. (laughs) It wasn't my favourite part, I'll have to be honest. Well, that's as gratuitous as lick my and stick my hairs up or whatever. Mr. Dursley, I have, I have to. I took a chance, and I didn't really validate my fact. But I claimed rock salt to be a rock. But then I, it occurs to me, I'm not absolutely clear. The salt comes from rocks, as opposed to salt that comes from sea. So rock salt. So by your argument, sea salt 
It's C. <laughs> oh, hey, is halide not rock? I ask you. Well, it's a mineral it's a, deposit. But it's a mineral, so sodium chloride. But what is a rock, though? What's well, a uh, rock is. Well, yeah, there are types of rock. There's metamorphic rock, igneous rock, sedimentary rock. Sedimentary rocks. See, rock salt is a sediment, is a sediment that's compressed and is therefore sedimentary rock then. I don't think it is a rock in itself. It's extracted from the rock. It's a, a rock contains minerals in it that have iron and tin as the metal components. I see your point. The final salt may be removed. However, the rock is chiselled out of the ground in rock form and therefore I am completely vindicated. Um, no. I'm going to push the button. It's happening. <laughs> no! Peter, Peter, Peter got it wrong. Peter, Peter, Peter. Oh, no, I can't. I can't. I just looked it up. Yes, rock salt is considered a type of rock. Yes! Um. <laughs> and that brings me to my next point, which is the largest salt mine in the world is in Canada. Back in 1866, there was a guy called Sam Platt, and he was he was looking to become a, an oil man, right? So he's he starts digging in a place called Goderich Harbour in Lake Huron in Canada, right? But Sam Platt did not find oil. But what he did find was salt. He found the first salt bed that was ever found in North America. So not being uh, a man to sniff at the opportunities that are presented to him, he's, uh, well, I'll sell the mine because I found something, albeit yeah. not oil. It's salt. So he sold the mine. It changed hands a bunch of times. But it's currently owned by a, a company called Sifto, coming under a parent company called Compass Minerals. And it's the largest salt mine in the world. It's 500 metres deep. It's produced 150 million tonnes of salt. And they use this method called room and pillar mining, where basically they dig down in, in a, a room of salt. They leave pillars of salt to hold the roof up and they dig out these kind of 60 foot by 60 foot rooms and dig the salt out, leave the pillars to keep the structure sound. What happens if it rains? It's under the lake, I think. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's a mine, right? So you can rain all it likes. When it melts, the, the salt would dissolve. Uh, only if the, if the rain got through. This is, this is well underground, right? This is not... Well, what about an underground... They could nip an underground water course, couldn't they? And it would just... The whole mine, the whole mine would fall apart. It could, Pete. You haven't thought this through. I mean, you have to take this up with Sifto Canada, to be honest with you, because they've been functioning this mine for many, many years now, and they haven't had any dissolving problems yet. If it did happen, then you'd have a lake of tears. A lake indeed. And it's actually, it's almost an underground town. There's hundreds of miners who work down there. And some of their big equipment, they basically assemble it in the mine. And when it's done, they just leave it. It's gone. It's like, it lives its entire life, mechanically speaking, under underground in these mines. A modern pit pony. Indeed, a modern pit pony my grandfather he was a farrier which were the guys that put metal shoes on uh, on the pit ponies so he would tell me stories of how he would sit in his shed on top on the ground level and the bell would ring whenever there was he was needed he'd get down in the elevator and go all the way down mile down and then two miles out under the sea and he would shoe the pony put the new shoe on it and then he would get back up to the surface because he hated it he said down there but he said when the mines were shut they just shut the mines and left all the pit ponies down there didn't kill them just left them down there and in my to mind run free <laughs> yeah. and in my mind there's like they've evolved over the past 100 years or whatever it's been giant eyed pallid yeah. pit ponies scampering around <laughs> they wouldn't have any eyes the eyes would have evolved away yeah 
echolocating pit ponies. <laughs> yeah. Pale white skin. and You know like... them by the clicking sound as they approach. <laughs> <laughs> oh, poor old pit ponies. Oh, that's a sad story, Ryan. Another, yeah. another winning end. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's a theme evolving. <laughs> So we have come to the end of the line. It is time to step into the dock, Peter, and prepare to face the people's judge. Judge Dursley, are you ready to give your verdict? Yes, I am. Then will the defendant please rise? Yes, sir. Your Honour, as usual, may we start proceedings by first asking for your verdict on factual content. Yes, uh, I'm afraid the error right at the start about you know giving some sort of dimension to the actual tropic oh, was it was 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 a bit of an issue. But I will cut you some slack on it was quite a difficult topic. Well, may we have your grade for factual content? Okay, for factual content, sorry, Pete, C+. Wow, I've been had. That feels harsh, if I'm honest. (laughs) I'm so sorry, Pete. Yeah, yeah, that sincere (sighs) face you're giving me, don't do that, you monster. (laughs) Judge Dursley, may we have your verdict on entertainment value? The Tropic of Cancer is a very funny place. Did you actually write that? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> well, it didn't come from the big stock of Tropic of Cancer songs that we know about. Oh, yeah, yeah I, I can see that. Yes, it, did, it went on a bit, didn't it? Um, okay, I, I have to give you one redeeming factor. Better not be the national anthem. He deserves a point knocked <laughs> off horrendous, that. wasn't it? <laughs> well, yes, it, it was. It wasn't done very well as well. Um, but there was there was one redeeming factor, and it possibly showed my stupidity as I didn't get the joke until just before the denouement came out, which is very strange because I usually see see things a mile off. But it was your sketch regarding batteries and salt. Salt and battery. That's an absolutely classic, first class, not embarrassing at all joke that. <laughs> <laughs> Stand in the pantheon of jokes. Well, of all I think time, it I does. Guess. So I think on that alone, I will give you B. Cool. I'm shocked that I've stood up a B based on that joke in particular. <laughs> That's amazing. You got a B, Pete. I'll take it. Uh, so you should. And let's move on quickly before he rescinds it. Your Honour, may we have your verdict on Dursley Factor? Well, you tried to put a bit of science in to please me, didn't you? Gave it my best shot, and then I realised quite early on I didn't really understand any of the science. And, and well, you were talking about the, uh, what, the nutation of the Earth, weren't you? Yes, that. <laughs> well, I mean, there's sort of the 43,000-year cycle. That is very interesting. So, for getting some moderately interesting science in, I will give you... B-. minus. Thank you very much. Moving on. Moving on quickly, please. B minus. Yes, yes. Moving on. Moving on. Okay. Well, here we are. We have reached the final verdict. But before the judge passes his ruling, Peter, you have an opportunity to enter a plea. If you choose to do so, please make that plea now. Well, the Tropic of Cancer is 
a very funny place. <laughs> I will yeah. say no more. I will stand up and take my judgment like a man. Okay. Well, thank you for that. <laughs> I think if you had said any more words, you would have <laughs> suffered deduction. Playing with fire there, wasn't I? <laughs> well, Your Honour, the defendant stands before you. Have you reached a verdict? Yes, I have. In which case, I would ask most respectfully for your ruling. Well, it's a toss-up between the factual content, which I think was quite low, and the entertainment factor, which was higher. I think we need to sort of work those in. And I think I've come to a happy medium. And the answer is... C+. Okay. Okay. C plus, okay. like sea salt. Like sea salt, indeed. I'll accept that. I'll take that, pop it in the ledger, Ryan, and we'll uh, move on to better and more exciting grades <laughs> in the future. <laughs> I don't know why that makes me laugh. <laughs> so stoic. He, sounds so dis- he does sound so disappointed, doesn't he? He sounds really disappointed. I was just relishing the disappointment. <laughs> I'm fine. I'm fine. What? Shut up. You're crying. I'm not crying. <laughs> Okay, so there you go. That is the show for this week. If you'd like to get in touch about any of the things that we've talked about on this show or just to say hello, you can reach out to us on social media through our website at hhepodcast.com or by email at peteandryan at hhepodcast.com. Absolutely. We'd love to hear from you and you never know, you might end up featured on a future show. And one way to definitely feature on a future episode is to rate and review the show on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Your recommendation can really help us bring the show to new listeners. And if you're on Mastodon, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, now known as X, you can find us at HHE Podcast. And if you subscribe there, you can get an alert whenever we post any trivia tidbits, news, photos, extra stuff. That's right. And we are going to be back again very soon with our next episode, episode 77, Carte Blanche in Guadeloupe during 2010 to 2015. But in the meantime, a huge thank you to the judge himself. Thank you, Paul. Well, thank you very much. And a big thank you to you, Peter. Thank you, Ryan. And that is it. I guess all that's left to say is... You've been listening to... <laughs> well, uh, the shirt man is coming now, right now. You can see him, can you? Yeah, I saw the van just pull up. I'll, I'll sit and wait until the doorbell goes. <gasps> all right. All right. Do yeah. it. Okay. He's worried about shirt guy. That's sweet, isn't it? There he is. Shirt Shirt guy. Shirt guy. Shirt guy. guy. Shirt guy, shirt guy, shirt guy, shirt guy. Oh, I love shirt guy. Shirt guy's great. We love, everyone loves shirt guy. Yeah. Never seen. Who knows what he looks like? Hey! We've seen his work. By his work shall we know him. Ryan, you're going to die.